Amen. So as you open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, uh, this is actually part B of chapter 7. Last week, if you guys remember, we covered the first few uh, verses from verses 1 through 17 of the Gospel of Luke. And so up until this point, just to kind of catch us all up, what's going on in the Gospel of Luke, um, Jesus, and, and, and last Sunday we read how Jesus, along with his disciples, uh, they entered a city called Nain. And we saw this miraculous thing uh, happen as they went to the city called Nain. We're told that there they were met with a tragic scene. You know, Jesus is going around in other cities. He's, he's uh, healing people. He's preaching the gospel, right, of the kingdom. And then he goes into the city with a huge crowd, nice commotion, everything. Everybody's joyous. And as he's entering the city of Nain, we're told that they're met with this tragic scene. And actually, as they were entering the city, uh, there was a funeral procession uh, going on. And, and there was a body of a man that, that, was, that was being carried out of the city. And we're told that he was the son of a mother who was a widow. And so no doubt it was this tragic scene, right? As Jesus is entering the city. And I love what it says about about Pataurus is that he had compassion on her. As he was going through, man, he didn't just kind of pass her by and say, oh, well, you know, I got other things to do, better things to do. No, but it says that he had compassion on her. And we're told that as he had compassion on her, we're told that he began to, he, he went to the coffin, he touched the coffin, which keep in mind for a Jewish man would have been a considered ceremonially unclean. As we're going through the book of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers on, on Wednesday nights, we, we learned how uh, it, was, it, was, it was deemed as unclean for a person to touch a dead body, so they would have to be a certain space apart from a dead body. But Jesus, kind of going against all cultural norms, he goes and he touches the coffin. And more than that, he, touched, he, he speaks to the boy and he says, get up. And we're told that he, 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 he brought back life back into, into the dead life of, of, this, uh, of this man. And as a result, we're told that news spread about him all throughout the land. And, and news spread about what he had done. And the rumor was going out and the people were saying, a great prophet has risen up among us. And then they were also saying, God has visited his people. Right? And as we get into uh, the second part of chapter 7, beginning there in verse 18, we pick it up here now with... Um, a story about John the Baptist. And it says this. So I keep in mind that as all this is going on, there's news about Jesus going around through all Judea. He's, he, his ministry has become very popular. Everyone's heard and everyone's questioning, is he the Messiah? Is he the prophet? Right? Is he the son of God? Is he God himself? Who is he? Right? And so verse 18 of chapter 7 says, Then the disciples of John, that's John the Baptist, reported to him concerning all these things. That's all these things that Jesus had done. And verse 19 says, And John, calling two of his disciples, said to him, Excuse me, says, And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or should we look for another? Right. And so we're introduced again now to, to John the Baptist. We heard about him first in uh, Luke chapter 1. Right? Uh, we're introduced to him, and, and uh, we're told that he was a miracle baby, right? born to Zacharias and Elizabeth in their old age. We're told that there was a, a prophecy given by Zacharias after the birth of John the Baptist. We're told that, that Zacharias was there in the temple. He was serving in the temple. And because of his unbelief, he was stricken with, uh, with uh, he was, became mute. He couldn't speak until he was born because of his unbelief. But once he was born and they named the child John, we're told that he gave a prophecy. Right? The Holy Spirit came upon Zacharias and he gave a prophecy concerning this little baby boy named John. Later on as John the Baptist. And he said this in Luke 174. He said, to grant us, speaking about John the Baptist, says that he will send to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve God without fear. He says, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And he says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare 
his ways. And so this was descriptive of the whole ministry of John the Baptist, that he was sent to prepare the way for Jesus, for the Messiah. That phrase right there was descriptive of everything that he did. Right? He was sent to prepare the way before the Messiah. And so we see that it was, a widely, uh, it was widely recognized that John would be sent to prepare the way for uh, the Messiah. And even John himself would, pub- would publicly declare uh, there in, in the Gospel of John. He would say, uh, as he saw Jesus, right? he said that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the sent one of God, and he called him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the earth. And so there was no doubt about who Jesus was, and there was no doubt about who John the Baptist was. And John, and John had no doubt about who Jesus was himself, right? He himself declared it. As he baptized him, he said, man, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the earth. They asked him, how do you know that? He says, because him who sent me to baptize, speaking of God, says, him who sent me to baptize told me, on him whom you see the Holy Spirit descend upon and rest like a dove, he says, he's the one whom I've sent. And then John the Baptist says, and I can testify that when I baptized Jesus, I saw that happen so I could recognize that he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the sent one of God. And so with all that, man, he was so confident in his ministry. But now John the Baptist is sending messengers to Jesus asking, hey, are you really the one or should we wait for someone else? Should we look for someone else? Right? So you might be thinking, man, what would happen? Well, for context, um, the Gospel of Matthew actually gives us an important detail that Luke, that, that Luke uh, leaves out. And there in Matthew eleven two, it says, And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two his, of his disciples. And so in a synoptic uh, a situation there in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew writes about this very same situation. But Matthew includes the very important detail that John was actually in prison while he sent these two guys. Luke just says that, that John the Baptist sent two guys to Jesus. But Matthew tells us that John was in prison while he sent these two guys. And then Mark 6, 6 17 tells us that it was Herod himself. It says, for Herod himself has sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison. For the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, at King Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And so John was in prison at this time because he was such an outspoken prophet, right? He didn't sugarcoat anything. He wasn't wasn't a respecter of persons. He wasn't going to hold back any criticism or any truth from anybody who was in sin because of their position. And so... We're told that John found out that King Herod was actually uh, now marrying his brother's wife. And there was this whole little whole background going on with, with the whole Herod family. But we're told that, that King Herod was now, had now taken his brother's wife unlawfully. Right? And when John heard about it, John called him out. And he says, hey, you shouldn't even be marrying her. You shouldn't even be with her. Because this is that and the other. He called, him, he called him out just how it was. And of course, it displeased Herod. It displeased Herodias, uh, the, the woman that she married. And as a result, man, she wanted to kill John the Baptist. But we're told that, that Herod actually recognized that John was a prophet, right? Uh, Herod actually came, uh, his lineage comes back to the Jews. And so he's in a, in, a, in a way kind of tied to the Jews. So he recognized that the Hebrew scriptures told of a Messiah was going to be sent. And he recognized that the Hebrew scriptures told that there was going to be a prophet sent before the Messiah. So Herod in some way esteemed John the Baptist as a, as a prophet. And so when he found out that, that his wife wanted to, kill, wanted to kill John the Baptist, he was kind of hesitant. And so what she did is that instead she sent her daughter to go in there and kind of do some exotic dancing before King Herod. King Herod, as he was all drunk on wine and kind of just uh, 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 up in his emotions, he said, hey, I'll give you whatever you want. Now, now Herodias, King Herod's wife, had already told his daughter, right, you're going to go, you're going to dance before King Herod. You're going to kind of just, you know, get his attention. And when he asks you what you want, you're going to tell him, I want the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter. 
And that's exactly what she asked for. And so we're told that, that John the Baptist was sent to prison by Herod for his accusation of his sin. And so with that as a background, John is in prison. He's hearing about everything that's going on. He's hearing about all the miracles that Jesus is doing. He knows that he's sent to, to prepare the way before the Messiah, before the Christ. He knew it was Jesus, but now he's beginning to, to be a little hesitant. Right? So as John was in prison, man, he was no doubt discouraged. Here he is, man, a faithful man of God. He had lived most of his life out in the wilderness, just obeying the call of God in his life, baptizing, preaching a message of repentance, prepare your heart for the, for the coming of the Lord. And now he is in prison, so he was no doubt discouraged, man. He began to question if Jesus was the one, right? He expected that, Christ, that the Christ would come, that he would uh, destroy the, the powers of darkness, and that he would overthrow Rome, and, and he would set up his kingdom in Israel immediately. And that was actually one of the, the misconceptions that a lot of the Jews had, that they believed that when the Messiah came, they were going to be able to recognize him because he was going to overthrow Rome. He's going to set Israel free, right? And he was going to rule there in Israel. And so John the Baptist was no different, right? He believed that Jesus was the Christ, but because what he was seeing, because he was in prison and, right, Lord, I'm waiting, I'm waiting for you to bust me out and let's, you know, let's, let's rule and reign in, in Israel. But because it hadn't happened yet, he began to question so he sends these, these messengers to Jesus say, hey, are you the one or not? Should we keep on looking for another one? And then it says this in verse 20, he says, and then when the men had come to him, that's to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And verse 21 says, and that very hour he cured many of infirmities, of afflictions, of evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. And then Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you have seen and heard, that the blind see, that the lame walk, that the lepers are cleansed, that the deaf hear, that the dead are raised, and that the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And so we see Jesus' response to these messengers sent by John. Right? He didn't say much. Instead, uh, he began to just do all kinds of miracles. Hey, are you the one or not? He didn't say nothing. But instead, he found a bunch of sick people, a bunch of people who were hurting, who were dying, and began to, to perform miracles amongst their midst. And so Jesus' response to the messengers were told at that very hour, as they, as they came and asked him, they were told at that very hour, he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits. And then he says, all right, go tell John what you saw, and go tell John what you heard. Right? This was going to be a bigger witness than anything that they could have taken back to John. Man, we saw him do this. Man, we saw him do that. Man, you were right. Man, we're not, we're not mistaken. All right? We see that Jesus wanted to assure John and his disciples that he was indeed the Messiah. Now, we see that, that Jesus reminded them what the ministry of the Messiah would look like. Because they had these false expectations of the Messiah, Jesus reminded them of what the, the ministry of the Messiah would look like. When he tells them, that, hey, go tell John what you see. Right? And he, he mentioned all these things. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. That's actually biblical. It's actually a prophecy of uh, uh, describing the ministry of the Messiah. There in the Old Testament, specifically in the, uh, in the, in the book of Isaiah, but uh, elsewhere as well, it describes in detail that when the Messiah comes, certain things that were going to take place. And there in Isaiah 35, just to look at one, Isaiah 35, 3, it says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. It says, say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. And notice this is, he will come to save you and the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped and the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb or the mute sing. 
says, For water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And so as Jesus, you know, instead of talking, he just begins to heal all these people. And he recognizes, look, this is going to be descriptive of the Messiah. And so for them to take word back to John the Baptist, he would have known, okay, it's written, right? This is the ministry of the Messiah. The deaf will hear, the lame will walk, right? The mute will speak. All these different things that are going to take place once the Messiah right, uh, comes. And those, those are all things that Jesus is doing. That is the ministry of Jesus. And so they take word back to John. All right, that's him. That's him. And notice what he says. Very interesting that Jesus says, And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Man, I really just had a camp out right there and just think about this. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. What was Jesus talking about? What did he mean? What was he referring to? Now, again, to many Jews of that time, when Jesus was there in his earthly ministry, the ministry of Jesus would have been offensive because they had their own expectations of what the Messiah would do for them. Again, thinking that he was going to come, he was going to overthrow Rome, he was going to set them free, he was going to do all... They, they expected the Messiah to be this political figure, right? To rule and reign, which Jesus will rule, rule and reign eventually, right? At the, uh, at the millennium reign. But at this time he came, right? This was his first coming. And so they had this false expect, expectation of what the Messiah would do for them, right? And Jesus didn't do many of those things that they expected him to do. Now, many of the religious leaders also were offended by Jesus because he sat with sinners. He ate with tax collectors. Uh, he went to the poor and to the needy of society instead of all the religious big shots. And so there were a lot of people who were offended by the ministry of Jesus because he was not doing what they expected him to do. Right. We see that a bunch of uh, uh, Pharisees and scribes and religious leaders were following him around, man, trying to kill him because he didn't meet their expectations. If you were really a Messiah, if you was really a man of God, if you was really the prophet, if you was really the, the Christ, then, man, he'd be over here on this side. He wouldn't be hanging out with tax collectors. He wouldn't be going to their, to their homes. He wouldn't be approaching these lepers. He wouldn't be approaching these sinners. That's what they thought. So they were offended by his ministry. Right. Many Jews believe that, that when the Messiah came, Again, he was going to establish his own kingdom there on earth and he was joined them. But instead, they see the ministry of Jesus and they're offended by it because it was one of love. It was one of humility. It was one of suffering. It was one of forgiveness where he would preach, hey, uh, pray for those who persecute you. you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Pray for your enemies. You know, pray for those who spitefully use you. Oh man, that's not, that's not what they want to hear. That's not what they wanted to hear, right? And so to many, man, they were offended by the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus says, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. But it's interesting, man, that, that us too, I mean, we could fall into, into the same danger of false expectancy from the Lord, right? Many come to the Lord believing that, man, all right, if I just come to Jesus, Jesus if I just start coming to church, my life is going to be all cleaned up, right? Uh, my family is going to be restored. My, my kids are going to start... Uh, acting right, right? They're, uh, they're going to be just the best behaved kids. Everything's going to fall into place. I'm going to have the best job, the most income, the biggest house, the nicest car. Never going to break down. All these different false expectancies that we put on our relationship with God. We think, man, if I just become a believer, if I just become a Christian, if I start going to church, this, this, that, and the other, and then this one, then I'll be above, right? All these things will happen to me or all these things will take place in my life. And, and we come to the Lord sometimes with these false expectancies, and then when, 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 when we walk with the Lord or, or for, for a, a, a next amount of time and then these things don't happen, and we become offended by the ministry of Jesus because the things that we expected Him to do in our lives don't come to pass. But like, man, He never told us these things were going to happen. right? We put those expectations 
on our walk. Not him. And so the same thing was going on there, there in Israel at this time. Right? People were listening to him. They were hearing him. They heard that, he, that, that the Messiah had come. But that he was not uh, ministering in the way that they thought he should minister. Right? He didn't meet their own expectations. And, and it's tragic. Right? And so we see that, that these things, right? wealth, health, all these other things. I mean, anything else that happens as a result of our relationship with God is because of the grace of God. It's because of the grace of God, right? And sometimes, sometimes miraculous things will happen. Sometimes we come to the Lord and, and man, God will blow you away. I mean, man, I've been blown away by the Lord. I've had miraculous healings. I've seen, man, some, some amazing things. I've experienced some amazing things. I've seen amazing things happen in, in other people's lives. But when we come to the Lord, the Bible doesn't promise us those things. The Bible promises that when we come to the Lord, we get this forgiveness of sins. And erasing of all our mistakes. We're told that God forgets everything that we did. That's, that's heavy because, man, you think God is sovereign. But he says when you come to him, he forgets your sins. I can't explain that. That's what the Bible says. It says that he casts your sins into the deepest parts of the ocean where no one can find them. We're promised this also. A relationship with God the Father through his son Jesus Christ. We're promised righteousness through the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross for us. We're promised fellowship with God now. And anything that comes after that is secondary. House, cool. A place to stay, cool. Car, this, that, family, the other. That's all secondary issues. And anything that, that comes after that is just by His grace. Right? And so when, when we come to the Lord, that's what we should expect. Not just, all right, a relationship restored with the Lord. Of course, a change now in our, in our hearts. But anything else, as far as material or anything else, man, it's, it's not promised. Instead, Jesus did say, uh, in the world, you will have tribulation. He says, but be of good cheer. He says, for I have overcome the world. Right? I like what Job says there in Job 13, 15. He came to the Lord. We're told that he was one of the most righteous men on earth at that time. Satan even accused Job to God, saying, well, the only reason he serves you is because you blessed him so much. Man, he's got so much property. He's got so many kids. And so Job says, look, if you take that away from, from him, he's going to curse you to your face. And God says, no, he won't. Let's see. Right? And so God allows Satan to, to test Job and pretty much rid him of everything that he had, all his material possessions, his health, right? his, his family. He was like one of the most cursed men on earth. And this is what Job said in Job 13, 15. Speaking about God, he says, Though he slay me, he says, Though he slay me, he says, Yet I will trust him. He says, Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. That's a beautiful heart to have. And it goes on to say there in verse 24, he says, And when the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. And he says, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? He says, But what did you go out to see? Was it a man clothed in soft garments? He says, Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. He says, But what did you go out to see? A prophet? He says, Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. And this is he whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way, your way before you. Quoting from, from Malachi. And then verse 28 says, For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Man, so much to unpack right here. So much to unpack. But Jesus, again, as the messengers leave, he begins to address the crowds. And he says, 
What you guys go out there to see anyway? Right? Because the ministry of John the Baptist took place in the wilderness. He wasn't in the temple. He wasn't there in the city. Right? He wasn't there where all the religious leaders were teaching or while the, the, the famous rabbis were there gathering crowds. No, he was in the outskirts. Right? And people would come to him in the outskirts. And he was baptizing people there in the Jordan River. And man, he was drawing crowds. There was multitudes, thousands of people who would go out just to hear him, just to see what he was doing. And the message that he was preaching was, was, was one of repentance. His message was, prepare your heart for the coming of the Lord. He says, make the crooked path straight. Right? So that as many would go out to see him, Jesus addresses this and he says, what you guys go out there to see anyway? He says, was it a, a reed shaken by the wind? And so we see again that, that John preached a message of repentance. Right? The ministry of John the Baptist was, was popular, right? Everybody knew what he was doing. John, in John chapter 3, uh, John the Baptist will say this. He will say, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So he will say, man, I'm just the best man. He says, Jesus is a, is, a, is a bridegroom. I'm just his best man. And I'm just happy to be here with him. Right? And then he says, this, he says, therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. And he says about Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. And so John preached this message of repentance. And his mission was to prepare the people's hearts for the, for the, to receive the Messiah when he comes. That was his mission. Right? And as people were going out there to see what he was talking about, they just heard, hey, there's some crazy guy there. He's the son of, of, of one of the priests. He should have been part of the priesthood. He should have been in the temple. He should have been uh, acting as a priest. But instead, he's out there, a crazy guy with long hair, eating bugs, eating locusts and, and honey and just clothed in camel skin and, and camel's hair. Some crazy guy out there, man, just preaching repentance and he's gathering a crowd, baptizing people. So no doubt, he was like a spectacle, right? People were just kind of go see what's going on. And so people went out to see not a man who was unsure of his beliefs, like a branch blowing the wind. That's what Jesus is saying. Would you guys go out to see uh, a reed shaking in the wind? That wasn't John, right? He wasn't wavering back and forth between his beliefs. He says, or some popular, well-liked teacher. Right? He says, hey man, that wasn't John either, right? He wasn't some man clothed in soft garments uh, and, and uh, um, clothed in these uh, gorgeous apparels, living in luxury as kings. He's like, that wasn't John either, right? He wasn't trying to, uh, trying to gather a crowd for himself. But he says, but no, he says, a prophet, right? You guys went out there to, to see him, to hear him, because you heard that he was a prophet. And Jesus uh, solidifies and confirms the ministry of John the Baptist. And he says, he was a prophet. He says, and, and more than that, he, he was more than a prophet. And then he quotes from Malachi, right there in Malachi 3.1. And so we see that Jesus confirms that, that the ministry of John the Baptist was prophesied about way before Jesus was even born. This is like 400 years before. And God, through the Holy Spirit, he came upon the prophet Malachi. And Malachi prophesied. He said this in Malachi 3.1. He says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So man, this would have been big for everybody hearing this. And if they knew the scriptures, they wouldn't know right. This is being fulfilled right before our eyes. Right? John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. And, and, and Jesus is saying that, that that was John the Baptist. That means that man, that the ministry of, of Jesus is one of the Messiah. Right? He's the Christ. He's the Christ. And then he says, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. And so according to Jesus, not what I think, not what, you know, all oh, my favorite prophet is this or that. But according to Jesus, Jesus said that there was no greater prophet than John the Baptist. There was no greater prophet that he was the greatest prophet who ever lived. 
That's what Jesus is saying. John the Baptist was the greatest prophet who ever lived. Right? I mean, just the fact that, that a, another prophet prophesied about this prophet was big. Because nowhere in the history, do we, or nowhere in the Bible, do we, do we ever have a prophecy about a prophet. Right? These guys would just spring out, man. God would, would just come upon these guys, right? The Holy Spirit would come upon these guys that would begin to prophesy in Israel and Judah. But nowhere did one prophet say, all right, uh, um, there's going to come a prophet by the name of, of so-and-so. He's going to prophesy about this. No, each prophet had their own independent ministries. But when it came to John the Baptist, his ministry was prophesied about by another prophet. And so that in itself makes them different from any other prophet who ever lived from the book of Genesis up until this point. But more than that, John the Baptist had the privilege of preparing the way for the Messiah. All the other prophets that came before him spoke about a coming day. John the Baptist was living in that day. All the other prophets said, look, there's going to be one whom God is going to send. And John the Baptist got to see the one whom God, who, whom God sent. He got to rub elbows with him. He got to baptize him. He, had to, he got to speak to him, right? To, to touch him, to see him with his very own eyes. So John the Baptist was the greatest prophet who ever lived because he had the blessed privilege of preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah. And he saw the Messiah with his own eyes. Something that none of the other prophets had ever seen or experienced. But then Jesus says this in verse 28. He says, For I say to you, sorry, I read that, but I'm reading it again. Among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So John the Baptist is the greatest prophet who ever lived. But he says, Jesus says, Whoever is the least in the kingdom of God is still greater than John the Baptist. Why is that? Because John the Baptist is the last prophet of the Old Testament. Right? The new covenant, the, the, the old covenant ended with John the Baptist. He was the last prophet of the, of the old covenant, of the Old Testament. He was the last prophet before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So technically, John the Baptist is kind of like a transition between the Old Testament and the New Testament because he's still prophesying about the Messiah. And then Jesus says, look, the least in the kingdom of God is greater than the greatest prophet in the Old Testament why? Man, this is amazing. He's the greatest prophet who ever lived, but yet still he didn't have what we have today. And that's forgiveness of sins and justification and righteousness through the blood of Jesus Christ. Because John lived and died before Jesus was, was uh, crucified, buried, and resurrected. And so if all of us are in the kingdom of God now today. And if you've ever thought yourself insignificant in the kingdom of God, have you ever thought, man, I haven't done much for God. I've never been to an orphanage. I've never been to a mission trip. I've never, you know, prayed for anybody. I've never preached the gospel to anybody. I've never evangelized anybody. I've never brought anybody to church. But I'm saved. You're the least in the kingdom of God. But know this, that even you, you're still greater than the, great, than the greatest prophet who ever lived. And so know that, that, that your, your ministry is significant because you're, man, even if you haven't done much for the Lord, which uh, I, don't, I don't believe that. I think anything that's done for God is a great work. Man, whether, whether God has called you to pour into your family, your kids, to you know, pray for that guy you see at the gas station without even talking to him, whatever it is that God has called you to do is the greatest work you'll ever do because you're obedient to it. But if you think of yourself as, a, as small in the kingdom of God, know that you're still greater than the greatest prophet who ever lived. And that's big. That's big right there. That's a huge privilege. Why again? Because we're under the new covenant. Man, we're under the blood of Jesus Christ. Something that they prophesied about, something that they look forward to, but we get to live in it. We get to live in it. And that's beautiful. And he goes on to say in verse 29, he says, 
And when all the people heard him, that's heard Jesus, even the tax collectors justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John. It says, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And the Lord said, to what then shall I liken the men of this generation? Speaking specifically about these religious guys. He says, and what are they like? And he says, they are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another saying, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We mourned to you and you didn't weep. And he says, for John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And you say, ah, he's, he's crazy. He's uh, demon possessed. But the son of man, speaking about himself, he says, has come eating and drinking. And you say, look, a glutton and a wine bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He says, but wisdom is justified by all her children. And so when he finished speaking this about John the Baptist, again, we're told that everyone who heard him, even the tax collectors, who keep in mind at that time were like the biggest sinners in Israel because they were, they were Jews who had betrayed their own countrymen and they had joined arms with the, with the, with the, Roman, with the Roman Empire and they, they were taxing their own people. They were ripping their own people off. So to them, they were like disowned by the Jewish community. They were considered like the biggest sinners. Like, man, they don't want nothing to do with these guys, the tax collectors. But even the tax collectors justified God, saying, man, God, you're so good because of what they heard Jesus say. We're told that the Pharisees and the lawyers, they rejected the will of God for themselves. Right? He says, having, not having been baptized by John. So the crowd that John was stirring up as he was preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, was guys like this, man, tax collectors, sinners, people who recognize their need for a savior, people who recognize their own sin, people who recognize the, the, the gravity right, of their own sin. Guys like tax collectors, sinners, I mean, all kinds of different people, right? But, but they knew they were sinners. They knew they needed God. They knew they needed to repent. But these Pharisees and these lawyers and a bunch of other religious guys were told that they rejected the will of God. They didn't come to John the Baptist to, to, to be baptized by him because they were like, man, well, we're the religious leaders of Israel, man. We're the Pharisees. We're the, we're the, the scribes. We're the lawyers. Right? He should be coming to us. We shouldn't be going to them. They don't want to, they had, in their mind, they had no reason to repent. They had no reason to be baptized with the baptism of repentance because in their mind, they were justified before God. And Jesus says, man, what shall I liken this generation to? He says, man, they're like kids who are saying, oh, oh, what's your favorite song? Okay, I'm, I'm going to play your favorite song so you could dance. And, I play, and they play and like, hey, I played your favorite song. You, you don't like it. So he says, look, they can't make up their minds. They don't know what they want. That's what he's saying. They're like kids who can't make up their minds on what they want. He says... About John the Baptist, they were saying, look, man, he's demon-possessed. Even though he, 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 he didn't eat bread or drink any wine. He says, no, nah, man, they rejected his ministry. And Jesus came and he drank wine. And he hung out with sinners. He, he, he hung out with the, with the poor and the needy. And they said, no, nah, he's, he, he, he's, he's not of God either. Right? They rejected him also. So he's like, man, you guys don't know what you want. That's what he's saying. Man, you guys don't even know what you want. You don't even know what you're looking for. Says, but wisdom is justified by all her children. Meaning, man, if you're wise, if you're seeking, says you're going to get it. You're going to get it. But because these guys thought that they were just above righteous, man, they never got it. And then he says this. Then one of the Pharisees, in verse 36, asked him to eat with them. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman, a woman in the city who was a sinner. So when she knew that Jesus had sat at the table in the, in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. And so as Jesus is saying, look, man, all you religious guys, you're like a generation. You don't even know what you want. You're like kids who, who, who can't make up their minds about what you want. 
You called him a, a, a sinner, right? And then I'm doing everything opposite that he did. And you called me a sinner. You don't know what you want. And so definitely probably one of the phrases he's heard, he says, all right, well, come to my house. Right? He's trying to, he's trying to, you know, uh, he's trying to, 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 to get Jesus to come into his house. He comes into his house. He sits down and we're told that as, he, as soon as he gets into the house, a woman, we don't know her name, right? There's a similar account to this in the Gospel of Matthew, but it's two different accounts. Because in Matthew, we're told that Jesus goes into the house of a leprous man. In this case, he goes into the house of a Pharisee, a religious man. So it's two separate occasions. But we're told that Jesus goes into the house. He, he's going to have dinner with this Pharisee. And as he goes in, we're told that a woman, unknown, says, who was in the city, who was a sinner, says, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table at the Pharisee's house, and she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and she stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and she began to wash his feet with, the, with the, her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. Now we're told uh, this alabaster flask, uh, later on Jesus then tells that man, this would have equated to about two years, a two years wage, meaning that man, this was an expensive fragrance. This was an expensive perfume. She knew that she was a sinner and man, she risked it all going to this Pharisee's house to just fall at the feet of Jesus. Now notice the Pharisee's response there in verse 39. It says, now when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he spoke to himself. So he didn't say it out loud. He probably just kind of murmured. Like, we're told that he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, he would have known who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. We don't know exactly what her sin was. It could have been sexual. It could have been that she just ripped everyone off. We don't know exactly what her sin was. But we do know that she was known. She had a reputation in the community. That's it. She had a reputation in the community for being, man, she's a sinner. And he said, if he knew who she was, if he was a real prophet, if he was a real man of God, he would have known what type of woman this is. And he wouldn't have even let her touch him. That's what he's thinking in his mind. Right? And then notice what Jesus says. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, ask something to say to you. So he said, all right, say it, teacher. And verse 41, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. He says, tell me now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, well, I guess the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, yeah, you're right. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? He says, I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since, since I came in. He says, you did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with friggin' oil. Therefore, I say to you that her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And then he says to her, your sins are forgiven. And so as she goes into the house, right, she, she man, just puts on this display of love before everybody. Man, she didn't care. She didn't care. All she knew was, man, Jesus is at his house. This is my chance. This is my only chance. She didn't know if she was ever going to get to see him again. She didn't know if she was going to ever get to, to be this close to him again. She didn't know if she was going to have another encounter with Jesus. She took her shot. She knew that, she, that, that these Pharisee guys knew who she was. Uh, they didn't want anything to do with her. They, she couldn't even come near them. She knew all that. But yet she risked it all to get close to Jesus. I love that. And as she goes into the house, man, she can't even face him face to face. But she just falls at his feet and just begins to cry. And Jesus makes a point. He says, look, Simon, I came to your house. 
And typically, uh, the Jews, you know, they would have a servant at every home. That when you go, we, it was a there was a job of the lowest servant of the house, the lowest paid guy, to pretty much have a bucket and a and, and a rag ready to 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 clean whoever's feet came in. And you're walking around the dusty the dusty roads of, of Israel. You come in, you're wearing sandals, and man, your feet are all dirty. They're filthy. So it was the job of the lowest servant to go in there and to wash the feet of the master or whoever came to the house. And Jesus says, "Look, man, I came into your house and you didn't even offer me water to wash my feet." He says, "But yeah, this lady, man, she's washing my feet with her tears." You said, you said, I came in and you didn't greet me with a kiss. It was a typical Jewish custom to greet each other with a, with a kiss, right? A kiss on the cheek. It was, it was a, 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 just this, this display of love. James would say, hey man, greet, greet the brethren with a, with a holy kiss. It was just a display of, of, of affection, of love, right? Nothing, nothing perverted. He says, I came into your house and you, know, you invited me in because you're, you, know, you, you recognize my ministry. But yeah, man, you didn't give me a bucket of water or wash my feet. He says, you don't even greet me with a kiss. He says, you didn't anoint my head with oil which would have been like super refreshing during the, the, the hot Israel summers. He says, you didn't do none of this stuff for me. And he says, but she, since the moment I came in, she hasn't stopped crying at my feet. She hasn't stopped wiping my feet with her hair. The most precious thing that a woman has is her hair. He says, she hasn't stopped wiping my feet with her own hair. He says, and therefore I say to you, he says, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And so the point of Jesus was, it's not that Jesus wasn't able to forgive Simon of all his sins. But the point is, is that Simon didn't recognize the, the, the severity of his sins. That's why he didn't deem it necessary to, all right, to, to, to give his honor to Jesus. He didn't even honor him with the lowest honor that you can honor any typical person. The bucket of water and, uh, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a kiss to greet him in the house. He says, man, you didn't even think I was worthy enough to, for even that. And so, and so Simon being a Pharisee, man, he thought himself, hey, you, you, I'm too holy. I'm too old. He didn't recognize his own sin. But this lady, man, she recognized her sin. And she, de- she, she recognized the depths of her sin. And so it was able that she was able to experience the depths of God's love and forgiveness of those sins. Because she knew that she was a sinner. Right? And man, the same, the same goes true today. Right? You tell somebody, hey man, you need Jesus. Why do I need Jesus? Hey man, we're sinners. Well, don't call me a sinner. People get offended when you call them sinners. I don't know if you ever noticed that. And you evangelize the detail, you copy, you, you, you point out people's sins, and man, everyone gets defensive. We've had someone come at us with a knife before because of this conversation of sin and forgiveness. People get really defensive about this stuff. You think, I'm not a sinner. I've done this. I've given to the community. I've given to charity. All right, I'm a big shot at my, at my job. I have this, that, the other. But Jesus is saying, man, to the person who isn't able to recognize their sin, says they're not going to experience the depths of God's love. Right? Not because God is not able, but because a person is not, the recipient is not willing. And that's an awesome encouragement to us. Because, man, as much as we're open to recognize, Lord, I need you. And God will give him as much as you need of himself to you. Right? So he says, your sins, he says to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I love that. Your faith that said you not your religious duties, not however money you gave to the church or to the temple, not however much you did in the name of God, not however much, you know, whatever. He says, no, it's your faith that has saved you. And the same goes true today. There is nothing, absolutely nothing that we can add to our salvation, but just our response, right? God already did everything. He sent his son. He died on the cross and he extended his hand. He came down to reach us. And the Bible says that whosoever will come. Just let him come. 
right? And that's our responsibility to just accept, not to just receive, to just come to the Lord, accept that invitation. And it goes on to say there in chapter 8 now. It says, Now when it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the, and the twelve were with them, says, and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, and then we name them by name, it says, uh, Mary called Magdalene, it says, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, uh, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him and their substance. And so Jesus now, he leaves that city, he leaves that town, he's going to, into a different area there. And we're told that as it came to pass, as, as he's going through every single city and village, he's preaching the kingdom of God. He's bringing good news to everybody. We're told that his 12 disciples were with them, right? The ones that, that, that he chose. But also, we're told that there was a group of women that were with them. And throughout the scriptures, throughout, throughout the, the, the gospel specifically, we're told that this group of women, man, stayed with him throughout the, his whole ministry. Uh, at the moment that he was being crucified, all his disciples left with the exception of, of John the Beloved. But it was all the women who were there right at the cross the whole time, right? And so here comes Jesus. Just, just picture the scene. Here comes Jesus. He's going from town to town. It's his 12 disciples and his group of women. Right? And, and Luke, uh, Luke goes to, to the trouble of giving us a little, bit, a little detail about some of them. He says one of them was Mary, called Mary Magdalene, uh, out of whom had come, seven, come out seven demons. He says, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod Stewart, and Susanna, and many others. And so here's Jesus with a motley crew of disciples, right? One guy who's, uh, who's an anarchist, a guy who's a tax collector, two guys who are fishermen. Uh, man, just this different group of individuals who are following Jesus, whom he specifically chose to follow him. And then also this group of women. You would think, man, Jesus being the son of God, you would think he would pick better, better partners in ministry, right? But no, he didn't. No, he goes after, man, the most needy. He goes after the man the most, uh, I mean... The craziest guys are the craziest women also. Uh, you would think, man, all right, uh, oh, who's on your team? Oh, I got uh, uh, James and John, the sons of thunder. They got uh, they had anger issues. Got a uh, uh, Peter, uh, um, he's a fisherman. He doesn't really know much, never graduated high school. Um, oh, I got uh, 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 Simon the Zealot. Hey, watch out for him, man. He's crazy. He, he, he gets all crazy when you ever say anything about Rome. Oh, watch out for, for Matthew, man. He's, he was a traitor and his, you know, he, he betrayed us. He was a tax collector. And all oh, this is Mary. Uh, by the way, I, I, I casted out seven demons from her. And then here's Chusa. We're told, uh, sorry, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, who was Herod's steward. That's interesting. That's King Herod. Meaning that Joanna was the wife of Chusa, who was King Herod's, pretty much he was his treasurer. So he, this guy would have been a guy who was, man, of high authority. They're, they're, they're with Herod. And probably very wicked as well, man. King Herod was crazy. They would say of King Herod that it was better to be one, in, one of King Herod's pigs than one of his sons. Because this guy was just demented, man. He killed most of his sons because he was, he was paranoid that, that they were going to kill him and take over the kingdom. And so he was a wicked guy. And yet here's the wife of his treasure following Jesus. Man, kind of skeptical characters. Right? It says, and many others who provided for him from their substance. Man, I love this about the Lord. I love this because, man... The Lord goes out and He seeks the most needy, right? The most questionable character sometimes. Man, it's all of us. I don't think there's anything that any of us could say, oh, I know why God chose me because of this. No way. In fact, in fact, I say the opposite. I don't know why God chose me, but I'm just following Him, right? And so this is these women and these are the disciples. And then as they're following Him, it says this, and when a great multitude had gathered 
And they had come to him from every city. He spoke a parable. Now a parable is, 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 is a teaching uh, which uses an illustration to come alongside of the teaching to, to, to prove a point. And he gives them this parable. Now, now this is the first time in the Gospel of Luke that we see Jesus speak in a parable. And it says, A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on rock, and as soon as it, was, it had sprang up, it withered away because of its lack of moisture. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. it says, but others fell on good ground and sprang up and yielded a crop a hundredfold. And when he who had said these things, says, when he had said these things, he cried, he who has ears, let him hear. And so here's Jesus. There's a huge multitude following him along with the disciples and those women who, who, who follow him also. And when the multitude came to him, he speaks to him in a parable. Again, this is the first mention of a parable in the Gospel of Luke. But throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus often spoke in parables. Right? Sometimes he would give them the, the meaning of the parable afterwards, and sometimes he wouldn't. And so whenever there's a parable and Jesus doesn't give the explanation, I mean, we could use what's called, um, I'm going to throw a big word, expositional constancy to determine what that parable means, which that pretty much means that whenever a term or a phrase or a word or an imagery is used anywhere else in Scripture consistently to, to prove a certain point, that means that you could apply, you could read it and there's no explanation, you could apply that same point that's been consistently used throughout the Bible for this, for this Scripture. That's all it means. But whenever there's no explanation of it, then, I mean, but, so when there's no explanation, but we could come to a conclusion, but we can't be for sure. But in cases like this where Jesus is himself is going to give the explanation of the scripture, we can know for sure what it means. And I say this because, man, I've heard some crazy teachings from this parable of the seeds. Like some out, out there teachings. You would think, man, well, Jesus gave us the meaning of these teachings. There's no, there's no way you could have came to this conclusion unless you completely ignore everything else from uh, verse 9 and onward. But we're told that as Jesus speaks to them in this parable, he's speaking to the multitudes. And then verse 9 says, Then his disciples asked him, saying, What does this parable mean? And he said, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to the rest it is given in parables that, and he's quoting there, says, Seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. And so parables is a way that, that, that one of the ways that Jesus used to kind of sift out the crowd. Right? If somebody was in the crowd and Jesus Spoke, spoke to him in a parable. Man, the person who really wanted to know the truth of God, they would dig deeper, right? They would dig deeper. They would get closer. They would continue studying. They would continue asking questions. They would uh, just be, be good students. But to those who were kind of just there to, all right, see what's going on, they would hear something they don't understand. Oh, 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 and they would just walk away. And so Jesus says to you, that's to his followers. He's speaking out to his disciples, not to the multitudes, but he's speaking to his disciples, to his followers. He says, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Right? And now he's going to explain to him the parable. In verse 11 it says, now the parable is this. He says, the seed is the word of God. And those by the wayside are the ones who hear. And then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should, be, lest they should believe and be saved. Right? And so Jesus in his parable, he says, look, a sower went out to sow his seed. And Jesus himself says that this seed represents the word of God, right? The gospel. And the soul represents the person who was out there sowing the seed. Which, man, in this case would be us. Who were out there, we're just sharing the word of God. He says, and those who were in the wayside, he says, some of the seed fell by the wayside and it was trampled down and the birds of the air devoured it. And so Jesus explains it to me. He says that, that the, the seed, again, is the word of God. 
those by the wayside are the ones who hear, but then the devil says those birds are those birds represent the devil. Says the devil comes in and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. And that's heavy because this is the truth that Jesus is teaching. He's saying that the devil is actively waiting for somebody to hear the word of God so he could come in and snatch it from their hearts. That's what Jesus is saying. That this is something that Satan is actively doing, pursuing, and seeking. He's just waiting for someone to hear the word of God. He comes in, boom, before it could even take root, before it could even be watered, before it could even uh, germinate, before it could even deepen, sink into the, into the dirt, he comes in and he snatches it away. And we see that so often, man. So many people who hear the gospel and it's like, you talk to them two seconds later and you're like, did you just hear anything I just said right now? For whatever reason, you know, the, their heart is open to the enemy coming in and boom, just snatching it away and never, it never has any effect. It's just a word that is wasted. In verse 13, he says, but the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, they receive the word with joy and these have no root who believe for a little while and in time of temptation, they fall away. So Jesus describes again one specific here. He says, look, man, they hear the word and Satan comes in and he snatches it away right away. And he speaks about, about another one. He says, the sword went out and he threw some seeds and they fell on the rock. And as soon as, as soon as it had sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And so Jesus says of this, of this, uh, of this ground, he said, those are those that hear and they receive the word and they receive it joy. They say, all right, awesome. Jesus, forgiveness, I need this eternal life. Awesome, new life, I'll take it. And they receive it with joy. And you look at their lives and there's, there seems to be some type of new life there as you see it. And you, you see the, the word of God kind of sown in their heart and, and you look at their lives and it seems like something is going on. It's all right, man. They believe in the Lord. Something's going on. God is working in their hearts. But Jesus said, something's going on, but, but that seed never takes root. And they believe only for a little while. And when the time of temptation comes, is they fall away, right? And there's many reasons why, you know, the word of God won't take root in someone's heart. And oftentimes, I mean, it's not, it's not because of God. It's not because of his word. It's not because his word wasn't strong enough, wasn't deep enough, wasn't good enough, wasn't powerful enough. But it's because of the condition of the heart of the hearer. That you have so many other things going on, so many other priorities that are not the word of God. That the word of God comes into your life and it kind of just stays on the surface. It's, it's there enough, long enough to, to at least uh, sprout, but it never has any root. And he says, and then any little wind of temptation comes and boom, it's, just, it's blown away. That's it. Because it was never rooted and grounded. Man, this is one of the reasons why I love and I'm devoted to teaching the word of God chapter by chapter, verse by verse, because as we learn the word of God, we become rooted and grounded in our faith. There's no way we can know that God is sovereign unless we go through the Bible. There's no way we can know that God loves me, that he's forgiven me, that, that, that he extends mercy, love, kindness, forgiveness, unless we go through the Bible. There's no way that I can know who my, what my identity is in Christ unless I read in the Bible. There's no way I can be rooted and grounded in my doctrine, in my belief, in who God is and who I am in Christ unless we go through the Bible. And so I make it my aim to go through every single verse so we can be rooted and grounded because lest there be somebody here who is like this now who just hears a word and for whatever reason never took root and just boom, it blows away. Tragic. And then he, he, he describes the third type. He says, now the ones that fell among the thorns are those who when they have 
heard, they go out and they're choked with the cares and the riches and pleasures of life and bring forth no fruit to maturity. Right? Jesus, again, he's back to the parable of the sower in verse 7. He says, some fell among thorns and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. And so Jesus describes now one that fell on thorns. It took root. It, was, it began to grow, but it, it grew along with thorns like this. And once it got big enough, the thorns choked out the seed that was planted. And Jesus says, this is describing you know, a type of person who believes. They go out and then they're choked. And the, thorn, the thorns represent the cares of this life, riches, pleasures of this life. In other words, uh, carnal ambitions or carnal pleasures, worldly ambitions, worldly pursuits. Right? They believe in the Lord, they're rooted, they're grounded, they begin to walk with the Lord, but somewhere along the way, earthly pursuits take over their, their, their desire to grow in the Lord and to walk with the Lord. They be, they, their, their mind shifts to now, hey, my job, my career, my this, that, the other, whatever, you put a stamp on it. Right? And that chokes out the Word of God in their life. And Jesus, Jesus describes now the fourth one there in verse 15, it says, but... The ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, that they keep it and it bears fruit. But notice, with patience. With patience. All right. Back in verse 8, he says, But others fell on good ground. They sprang up and they yielded a crop a hundredfold. A hundredfold is not a normal crop. It's actually, a, when you speak about a hundredfold, it's like, man, that's like a, a miraculous amount of, of, of crop that you get back for, for your seed. All right. So Jesus is describing just this miraculous kind of uh, outturn. From this one seed. And he says, this person or this, 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 this believer's life, right, who yields a hundred, hundredfold worth of crop, he says, is a person who has a noble and good heart and they keep the word of God and they bear fruit with patience. Meaning that's not immediately, not that somebody gets saved immediately, all of a sudden, boom, down fire for the Lord and God is just using it mightily. But he says, no, that over time, right, the fruit that they bear over time is a hundredfold. It's not an instant. But it's all that fruit that, that's, that's formed over time as they're walking with the Lord. Because so they keep it and they bear fruit with patience. Now, Jesus just gives these four examples of, 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 uh, of different lives. You know, it doesn't mean that there's, that, there's, that, the, that, the, that there's only those four. But those four typically describe or generally describe uh, the type of year. Right? If you've been walking with the Lord for any time and you've been in church for any time, uh, man, you, uh, even as we're reading through them, you might even think of people who are like, man, you know, I, yeah, I know somebody like that. Oh, I wonder if that's what happened to them. Oh, yeah, I think they might be, maybe their heart was like one of these soils. Right? doesn't mean that there's, that there's uh, any less in that or any more than that, but generally that describes the type of heart uh, who receives the word of God. Right? And, and for us, it's an awesome example. And uh, I think it's a good kind of like a measuring stick as we go through these things. Because, man, sometimes we don't know the type of soul that, uh, that, that, that's on our heart, right? We don't know. I mean, man, I pray to God, you know, and I make it my aim to walk consistently with the Lord and to fall more in love with Jesus every day. But the reality is, man, I don't, I don't know where I'm going to be in 20 years. I pray to God that by His grace, I'm still walking with them and I'm just faithfully serving Him. But the reality is that, man, all of us, every single one of us, you know, have the responsibility to, to do these heart checks every single day. Again, going back to what David says, in Psalm 139, he says, Lord, search my heart and know my thoughts. Right? And show me if there's any wickedness in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Right? And I think that's a good practice that we go through these four types of soils. It's a good heart check to say, man, Lord, am I like that? Lord, am I kind of getting choked up right now by the cares of this world? Lord, am I kind of rooted and grounded in you? Do I know who I am in you? Do I know what I believe? Do I really believe it? Lord, 
Are there distractions in my life that are keeping me from just being rooted and grounded in your word and in my faith and in my walk with you? Because there is. God, I want to get rid of those. And I think it's an awesome way to, to end this study. Amen.